Hello and good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Bill's Facebook Live Studies. In fact, uh, this will be the only session this week. As you know, Thursday is Thanksgiving and I will not be sharing a class on that day. Next week, as we have already started, we are in the book of Acts and we it is going quick, isn't it? Have you noticed that? Uh, as we go through the book of Acts, I love how F. Lagarde Smith does it because he factors in the writings of the other New Testament books when they occur in the story of Acts. Of course, some of them are written after uh, Acts is finished, which uh, charters the, about the first 30 years of the church's existence. And then uh, later on, we'll get the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. But right now, we have just finished recently the uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which, uh, as you know, uh, as they all end at the same place with the arrest and the uh, trials, uh, the conviction and death, burial and resurrection and appearances of Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel. First Corinthians 15, Paul lays it out exactly like that. He says, I presented to you what is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to many, and he lists many of them, including himself. Um, it's, the, it's the amazing salvation story. If it were not for the story that we're telling today and that you have read over the last several days, um, there would be no response of faith. In the book of Acts, we'll find several instances, including already in chapter 2, where the question is asked, what shall we do? What do we do to be saved? And the response is always the same. You have to respond in faith, uh, believing in Jesus, repenting, changing your life, repenting of your sinful ways, confessing that this is what you believe and that this is a genuine belief and conviction in your heart and being baptized into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins as Peter responds in Acts 2 verse 38. Uh, we have several instances that you're reading in the book of Acts where that question is asked and answered, and you put them all together and you come to that great response of faith, as I just uh, just mentioned. But before we can get there, you could do that every day. You could be baptized every single day, and if not for what we're reading today and discussing in this lesson, it would not matter. It would simply be just getting wet. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3 when he talks about baptism and he connects it with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he says it's not the removal of filth from the flesh, it's not taking a bath, but it's something that as Jesus said to Nicodemus early on in John chapter 3, you must be born again of water and spirit. And that's the difference. But before we can get there, there has to be a reason to do that. There has to be something that pays the price for our sinful state. And that something is the blood of Jesus, the Son of God himself. So we're going to be looking a little bit at Matthew and Luke and John, especially those three. We'll mention Mark. They all tell the same story. And as we've seen all along, they each have their own perspective. They're very selective. John acknowledges that at the end of the Gospel of John. And we realize that they all write from a certain perspective with a certain purpose, but they all tell the same story. And that story is that the Son of God became human 
and he lived the life of a servant and preached and taught and lived the will of the Father and ultimately gave his life for our sins but was not left in the grave, but his body was resurrected and that tomb, that stone was rolled away and that tomb was found to be empty and he appeared to many and then ascended into heaven and then began his church 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after uh, his resurrection on that early Sunday morning. So let's look at this. We're going to be starting in Matthew 26. Jesus begins uh, all of this. As we know, he is uh, in the garden praying. And uh, Judas Iscariot, who had left that upper room and gone to the Jewish leaders and said, now's the time. And they gave him the 30 pieces of silver and he took them to Jesus and he betrayed Jesus with a kiss so that they would know exactly which one of those men out there in that dark garden uh, were the one, was the one they were looking for. And uh, when he does, they arrest Jesus and all the others scatter. Uh, Peter follows at a distance. John follows at a distance. Perhaps some of the others did too, but ultimately none of them stands up for him or with him. And they all <clears throat> run away, as was, um, as was prophesied by Jesus. Uh, Peter was warned, and yet he still denied him three times. Uh, being asked after Jesus was arrested, aren't you one of them? It seems like you're from Galilee. Your, your uh, dialect gives you away. But Peter denies it and denies it and denies it. And then that rooster crows. And Luke is the only one who records this. Luke records that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly. He cried his eyes out. But unlike Judas, he did not give up. He turned back to God. He did the very hard thing of taking responsibility for his sins and uh, returned. And Jesus, as we'll see in a little bit, is one who puts his arm around him and tells him, Peter, you're forgiven and you've still got a job to do. But before all of that can happen, Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And he stands before Caiaphas and Annas and they bring in false witnesses that they paid off and none of them can, can provide a good reason for Jesus to be killed as if they needed one. But it's just like when, when Judas returns the money and throws it into them before he takes his own life. They say, well, this is blood money. We can't just go out and put it in the treasury. Like they have suddenly developed a conscience, it's unfathomable. And so that's when they uh, buy a piece of land and they turn it into a, a graveyard for some of those that perhaps can't find any other place to be buried. Um, and it's just an amazing, amazing story. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57, is the hearing. And they can't find any of them to uh, make sense. And, uh, and so finally the high priest calls to, God, to Jesus and he says, look, I charge you to tell us the truth. Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 64, you have said so. But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that's all they need. That alone, if it's not true, is blasphemy. And they convict him. They say guilty. He's worthy of death, but not just any death. Oh, they could have stoned him and been okay probably with the Roman authorities, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted the most cruel 
uh, type of putting someone to death known to humanity, and that is crucifixion. And under the law of Rome, Rome was the only authority that had the right to sentence someone uh, to crucify, to crucifixion and to carry that out. And so they, that's exactly what they do. And they take Jesus uh, to Pilate, and Pilate is there, and, and it's interesting, the, the uh, account between Jesus and Pilate is uh, some of the most interesting and amazing interaction in this whole story. After Jesus has been beaten by the temple guards, the Jewish guards, his own people, uh, humiliated and made fun of, they take him uh, to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Uh, as John records, they don't go in. They ask for Pilate to come out because, uh, as best we can tell, there were some dating differences as far as calendar differences. <clears throat> and the Jewish leaders were getting ready to observe the Passover that I believe Jesus and his disciples had done the night before. And now here they are. And they go before Pilate and they say, we want you to condemn this man. And Pilate says, uh, judge him yourselves. You have a law. Uh, you have some freedom uh, and some leeway from Rome. Uh, go do this yourself. But they said, no, no, no. We want him to die by crucifixion. And this was to fulfill the prophecy, as we have seen. And so uh, Pilate goes inside and begins to interrogate Jesus in verse 33. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded in verse 34 of John 18, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? And Pilate replies, and you can just hear the sarcasm, am I a Jew? It was your own people who delivered you. I have the, I have the authority to put you to death, but it's your people who are, who are the ones who are saying you should die. Um, and so Jesus says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And so Pilate thinks he's got him. Ah, so you are a king then. Ha, gotcha. And then Jesus says this, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate asks that haunting, empty question in verse 38 of John 18, what is truth? I think Pilate, as a good politician, doing whatever he needed to maintain his position and authority and his, um, uh, his place in government, um, had lost sight of what truth was. As far as he was concerned, truth was whatever he needed it to be to advance his career. And when Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Pilate says, I don't even know what that is anymore. Jesus had answered that question, hadn't he? We saw that uh, last week in John 14. I am the way and the truth, and no one comes to the Father except by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll see that exhibited in a powerful way in just a little bit. Um, and so they go on and Pilate goes to them and he says, oh, I've got a chance to make this right. I can, I can make them look good. I can make myself look good because every year at the Passover, uh, uh, Pilate, the governor, would release one of the criminals that the Jews wanted to be released. And so Pilate says, hey, how about this Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, I can't find any fault in him anyway. 
So how about I just have him beaten and flogged and release him? And they say, no, 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 we want Barabbas. Barabbas, that man who had been convicted of insurrection and murder. They said, no, let's have Barabbas. I love uh, Max Lucado in one of his first books, I think perhaps no wonder they call him the savior or God came near one of those. And he says, we are all Barabbas. We're the ones who should have died and yet Jesus died in our place. And I think that's exactly right. Pilate ultimately releases Barabbas. He still goes back and forth uh, with them, the Jewish leaders. He still goes back and forth with Jesus. In fact, in verse 10 of chapter 19 of John, he says, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? You would have no power over me, Jesus said, if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And so Pilate is trying every way in the world he can, he thinks, to get, get Jesus off the hook. And he hears that he's Galilean, and he knows that Herod is in town to observe the Passover in Jerusalem. And so he has him shipped off to Herod because Herod has jurisdiction in Galilee. And Herod, um, Herod asks him all kinds of questions, but Jesus never responds at all. And in fact, it's kind of interesting that um, only John uh, uh, mentions that Jesus appeared before Herod. Herod uh, has him beaten, uh, humiliated with uh, the, the crown of thorns and uh, a robe and all of that. And, and then he sends him back. Uh, to Pilate, and Pilate brings him out one more time and says, Behold your king, and they say, We have no king but Caesar. How about you? This man claims to be a king. Anyone who claims to be a king is usurping the authority of, of King Caesar. And that's when Pilate goes to the seat of judgment, and he makes that judgment, and he says, Guilty, death by crucifixion. And so Jesus is uh, found guilty and sentenced to death. And we read about that crucifixion and burial in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, in Luke 23 and here in John 19 as well. And as in that, we, we know that Jesus goes and carries his cross until he collapses. Um, and then Simon, a man from Cyrene, uh, comes and uh, is forced to carry the cross away uh, until they finally get to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Uh, in Latin, that word is Calvary. And that's where we get all those wonderful songs that talk about lead me to Calvary and the others. Um, that's the Latin for that word Golgotha, which means the skull. So apparently the place where Jesus was crucified had some kind of markings, shape, <clears throat> that made it look like uh, a skull, and that's what they called it, and that's where they nailed Jesus to the cross and then raised that cross up into the ground high above, just as Jesus had said, the Son of Man will be lifted up, signifying the kind of death he would die, and people would look upon him as he talks about in John chapter 3. In those chapters, we read the seven uh, last statements that Jesus makes that are recorded from the cross <clears throat> and none of them have them all uh, some of them are only in one most of them in fact of the of the uh, chapters in matthew 27 and mark 15 jesus makes that statement my god my god why have you forsaken me 
And that's a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Go back and read that psalm, the 22nd psalm, because I think Jesus was thinking of that whole psalm on the cross because it talks about the suffering of the psalmist and looks ahead to the suffering of the Savior. Uh, at that moment, Jesus certainly felt like the Father had forsaken him and deserted, and deserted him. Remember, he had prayed in the garden, let this cup pass. If there's any other way, let's do it that way. And yet, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, in Luke chapter 23 is recorded the statement of Jesus when he says, um, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Also in Luke 23 is that interaction with the thief. The others record that he was crucified with thieves and they didn't show any faith. And yet Luke records that one of them came around and uh, and criticizes the other thief because he says, look, we deserve to be up here. This man has done nothing. And then he asked Jesus to remember me when you come in your kingdom. And that's when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What a great message of hope for a dying criminal. Jesus, while on earth, had the authority to forgive sins. We'd seen him do it before. Your sins are forgiven. He told the man who had been lowered through the roof. He told others as well. <coughs> and so now he tells that thief the same thing. And then finally he says in Luke 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think that's a wonderful prayer for us all to pray all the time, every day. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my life. It's another way of saying thy will be done. And then finally in John 19 are the last three statements that Jesus makes from the cross. He looks down from the cross and he sees John, the apostle writing the gospel of John, and also Mary, his mother, his earthly mother, standing there. And he tells his mother to look at John and say, this is your son. He tells John, this is your mother. And John records uh, that from that day on, he took Mary into his home and took care of her as he would his own mother. Interestingly enough, a couple of the brothers of Jesus that had not believed in him would ultimately believe in him and become such leaders in the church, James in Jerusalem and Jude, both of them writing books of the New Testament, the book of James and the book of Jude, um, but not yet, not until that resurrection. And so Jesus takes care of his mother. He says, I thirst. And they give him water. They, they, uh, they had tried to get him to drink something that would uh, perhaps ease the pain, and he refused. But now he drinks a little bit of water, and then he says, it is finished. That incredible statement, it is finished. Satan had tried to get him to find some other way to get people to worship him. Even at the temptations earlier, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he had said, hey, jump off this high place in the temple and the angels will save you and everyone will believe you. And Jesus wouldn't hear of it. And even here at, at Golgotha, at Calvary, at the cross, there were those Jewish leaders and others who were making fun of him, humiliating him, taunting him. Hey, come down from that cross and we'll believe you. Well, Jesus could have done that. He could have done that. He could have called all those legions of angels and everyone would have known that he was who he said he was. But there would be no salvation, not for them, not for us. And so Jesus stayed and he suffered 
and ultimately he died. It is finished. The gospel writers record his burial, but only John in John 19 uh, records that it was not just Joseph of Arimathea who was a member of the ruling council, but scripture says he had not gone along with their decision. And he was a disciple, but privately, now it's about to be made public. Because just here during the time of the Passover, he makes himself unclean, ceremonially unclean, by taking the body of Jesus off the cross and bringing him to his own tomb that was nearby and burying him in there. And he had a help. He had a man that helped him, another member of the ruling council, a man by the name of Nicodemus. We had met him in John 3 when Jesus interacted with him. We saw him again at the end of John 7 when he speaks out very timidly in a, in a session of the council that ultimately condemned Jesus. But here, along with Joseph, he takes down the body of Christ, becoming ceremonially unclean by being in contact with a dead body, places him in, in Joseph's tomb, has a stone, uh, rolls the stone in front of it, and then uh, they leave him there. It's an incredible, incredible statement. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell about the death of Jesus on the cross, and they tell about his burial, and then they also tell about his resurrection. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21 talk about the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, uh, Luke uh, records that as he begins that transition from the story of Jesus in the book of Luke to the story of the church in the book of Acts. Uh, I love these uh, statements in the Gospels about this resurrected one. The women who go there at first don't recognize him. It's kept from them. Mary even thinks he's the gardener and Jesus says Mary. And that's when she calls out to him and he tells he tells them, go and tell my disciples. One of them, I believe, Mark says, and Peter. Go and tell my disciples and Peter, perhaps signifying that he's going to have trouble with this, but let him know from the start that I specifically want him here. And they tell them that they have seen the resurrected Savior. John records this foot race in John 20 between Peter and likely John. As they run, Peter being a bit older, so he's a little bit slower, and John reaches the tomb first, but he, not, I'm not going to go in there. And then, of course, when Peter gets there, he just runs right in, and uh, the tomb is rolled away. Uh, the seal of the emperor, they had tried to make the tomb extra safe by bringing an extra guard there and uh, having the emperor's seal there, and yet that seal was broken. The guards didn't know what happened. They were paid off to say the disciples, these mealy-mouthed disciples who ran for their lives when he was arrested, came and overpowered this extra Roman guard of soldiers, armed soldiers, who knew that if they didn't do their job, they would be killed. They would receive the punishment that was supposed to be meted out to this prisoner, this man who had been convicted and crucified, and yet they were paid off, and they were told, look, just spread the word that the disciples overpowered you, and we'll take care of you if it gets back to the governor, the Jewish leaders tell them. Uh, but we know that's not true. 
And when Peter and John get there, Peter goes in and he sees. I think it's what they see and, and also what they don't see. They don't see the body of Christ. But what they do see are the grave clothes. And the way John describes it, it's almost as if the clothes just gravity brought them back down to that perhaps rock place where they had laid the body of Jesus, except now there was no body there. And so there was nothing to hold up those clothes, and they just sank. And when they saw it, John says, we believed. We saw when we looked in that tomb, <clears throat> we believed. There are other instances where Jesus appears to the disciples. In Luke 24, only Luke records this interesting account of Jesus joining himself to a couple of the disciples. They were on their way, likely home, to a town nearby called Emmaus. And so he walks with them, and they are, they're kept from recognizing him. And, and as he does, he says, so what are you talking about? And they say, what, are you crazy? Don't you know? Everybody's talking about this. And, uh, and he says, well, what is it? And they say, well, we had thought that this man, Jesus, was the Savior, was the Messiah, and we saw him crucified, and now it's gotten really weird because some of our, our friends have told us that he, the tomb is empty and that he's been raised. And, and Luke records that Jesus tells them, look, don't you know this was what was supposed to happen? And it says from that point on, he opened up the, Holy, the Old Testament to them, and showed them through the scriptures that this was exactly what was supposed to happen. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard that little Bible lesson? Boy, if there's one place where I'd really like to go back to, it could be that one. <clears throat> In Luke 24, hearing Jesus tell his own story. Uh, I'm sure that was amazing to them. And so when they get home, they tell him, hey, don't, don't leave, stay and eat. And so one person has said, the guest becomes the host, and Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and he blesses it and he gives it to them. And that's when their eyes are opened. And when they tell the story after they run back to Jerusalem and the others, they say, Our, we, we recognized him when he broke the bread. Again, Jesus had done that just before. They, they had been around Jesus eating for three years. In fact, when he appears before some of the other disciples and they question whether it's him or not, he says, well, do you have anything to eat? <laughs> and so they, they do that when he sees them out fishing and they, he tells them about uh, where to cast and they do and they throw the net out and they, they bring back a, a great big load of fish. And when they get there, Jesus already has some on the fire and eats with them. And it's the way he demonstrates who he is. I think that's so amazing. I love that about Jesus. Uh, love it so very much. And then there's that great account in John 21. When Jesus is walking with, with Peter and John a few steps back within earshot. And Jesus asks him three times, Simon, do you love me? And Simon Peter says each time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And each time Jesus says something like, feed my sheep. And you've probably heard preachers tell the story about the difference in the terms. And we don't get it in English. It's the same word love. But there are several words that mean love in the, uh, in the New Testament Greek, the Koine Greek. One of them is agape, and you're probably familiar with that word. And that's what Jesus asks Peter on the first two. Peter, do you love me? That agape love, that, that highest form of love, the most self-sacrificial love, the kind of love that I showed to you by giving my life on the cross. 
And Peter responds and he can't bring himself to say it. So he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but it's a different kind of love. It's that phileo love. We get our word Philadelphia from the word phileo, which means that brotherly affection and adelphos, which is the word for brother. And so the city of brotherly love is called Philadelphia. Jesus asks Simon, do you, do you love me with that great agape love? And Peter can only bring himself to say, Lord, you know that I love you. That brotherly affection, I can't commit. He could before, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, Peter had said, I will never deny you. And then he denied three times after being warned. But Jesus still calls him back to faith, back to, back to ministry, feed my sheep. Same thing the second time around. The third time around, Jesus uses Peter's word. Do you love me with that brotherly affection, that phileo kind of love? And it says that Peter is saddened because he asked him the third time. And it could be because it was three times. It could be because he used the different lower term of love. But Peter responds and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my Sheep, I've still got work for you, Peter, and he still does for us too. In spite of our sinfulness, we think of those times where we failed him miserably. And we think, well, Jesus could never forgive us, much less give us a part of his mission. And yet, same with Peter. And Jesus comes to us and says, do you love me? And he says, feed my sheep, continue to do the ministry I've called you to do. Because of our sins, that's exactly why Jesus died on the cross. So yes, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. No one is except for one, the Savior who is tempted. The writer of Hebrews says in every way, just like we are, yet never sinned. What an incredible, incredible blessing we have in this Savior. I see Jesus and Peter walking along kind of by some water somewhere on a path somewhere and Jesus with his arm around him, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He gives us that same message today. We sing a song sometimes, I know that my Redeemer lives. Uh, other songs that talk about that great resurrection. It is the hope of the resurrection that gives us uh, a reason to live each and every day. If that tomb had been uh, found secure, when everyone went to see it that early Sunday morning, then we would not be here today because there would be no use. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about not just the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection, but also the appearances. And he mentions James, the Lord's brother, and he mentions himself. And it's that vision of the resurrected Jesus that turned the tide with them. And we have that same witness recording that they saw him, eyewitnesses. We saw him dead and we saw him alive. And there's no way that you can disprove the resurrection because it happened in the city of Jerusalem, the same city that Jesus had been crucified in just three days earlier. <laughs> and he had been buried right there. And then the disciples within just days after his death begin to say, hey, we've seen him alive, the tomb is empty. And yet no one goes to the tomb. No one disproves the theory. No one presents the body of Jesus. And less than two months later on the day of Pentecost, still in the very same city, Jerusalem, they begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation in the name of the resurrected Jesus, 
forgiveness of sins, the response of faith, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Being They, they bring the apostles in and they question them and they threaten them and then uh, they start to beat them and persecute them. We read about that in Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5. Ultimately, uh, the first Christian martyr that we're reading about right now, uh, Stephen, is killed. And then the first apostle, James, the brother of John, not the brother of Jesus, but the brother of John, James and John, the sons of thunder. <laughs> Jesus had nicknamed them. Uh, James is the first apostle killed in Acts 12. But there's no, there's no disproving this. All they had to do was go to the tomb, and it would be so easy. Everyone knew where it was. It had just been days since he had been killed and buried there. There was no Roman guard. There was no seal. There was only this story that they had been paid to tell. These weak, cowardly apostles came and overpowered these armed Roman soldiers and rolled away the stone and broke the seal and stole the body of Jesus. Never happened. Never happened. God raised him just like Jesus said he would. And because that tomb is empty, we now have hope. That is our hope. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus wasn't raised, our faith is futile, it's vain. And he's right. But because the tomb is empty, because Jesus ascends to the Father and is there waiting for that word to come and bring us home, we have hope. I'm excited about reading the rest of the New Testament with you. I'm excited about the story of the early church, those first few decades we read about in Acts, those first few letters that are going to be written. Even from jail, Paul writes uh, what we call the prison epistles, uh, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians from jail at the end of the book of Acts, as best we can tell. And ultimately, that wonderful book of Revelation that reminds us that God's people, in spite of persecution and suffering, are called to rejoice. Why is that? How is that? One reason, the empty tomb. Our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. And the hope that we have inside our souls that turns into joy in a joyful life is found in the resurrection, that tomb is still empty. Again, I won't be having a class on Thursday. Happy Thanksgiving. This blessing of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the greatest blessing of all. And for that, we could not thank God enough. But I hope as you go through these next few days that you're able to spend some time with loved ones, that you're able to spend some time reflecting on those great blessings that you're thankful for. And I hope and pray that you especially remember to thank the Savior for the greatest blessing of all, that blood that was shed, that tomb that is now empty. I'll see you next Tuesday.